I'd like to begin by just asking you a question this morning. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is he? Years ago on the Bible study hour, the staff of the radio program went into the streets of Philadelphia to ask two primary questions. The first one was, who is Jesus Christ? And the second one is, do you think that Jesus Christ is God? And certainly the answer revealed the confusion that exists around the identity of Jesus Christ. One woman responded and said, Jesus Christ was a man who thought he was God. Another young woman, a biology student, replied, Jesus Christ is pure essence of energy. God to me, he said, God to me is energy, electric energy, because it's something that's not known. End of quote. And the, a man said, I think that's something you have to decide for yourself. But he had some beautiful ideas. Another said that he was interested in the social betterment of all classes of people. This particular individual said that he was well-liked, that he was a good man. Most people asked were just confused. And this is a question people have asked and have been, or have been asking and even answering ever since Christ's time. And that needs to be answered again and again and again with each generation. Who is Jesus Christ? Look down in your Bible at John chapter 7. They also were asking this question. It says of the Jews in chapter 7 verse 11 that they were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said no. He is leading the people astray. Verse 13, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Look over in John chapter 7 in verse 40. There the scripture says, when they heard these words, some of the people said this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? I mean, there was confusion. Look over at John chapter 9 in verse 16. There it said that some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. For he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Look over at chapter 10 in verse 19. There, there was a great division among the Jews because of these words. And many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so here, who is Jesus Christ? And as we come to John chapter 7, he will answer that question. He will answer that question all throughout John's gospel, but certainly in these next two chapters, that will become the focus. And you must decide, really, is the intent of John's words here. And remember, as we looked in John chapter 6, we looked at two responses 
of the disciples to the person of Christ. Remember at the feeding and the discourse on the bread of life, there were false disciples who lived in unbelief. And then secondly, there were true disciples who lived in belief. And Peter stated that as such. But confusion in this time, and certainly our time, abounded about Christ. And as we approach John chapter 7, and certainly 8, there is an escalating conflict that is coming really to a a boiling point. In fact, that one man in the interview said that he was a good man, that he was well-liked. Well, certainly, he was not well-liked by many. In fact, as you approach the text, look at John chapter 7, 1. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee because he would not go about in Judea. And here's why. Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And so there's a conflict here. And there will be throughout the rest of John's gospel. There was a Jewish people that were seeking to kill him. Look down at chapter 7 and verse 19. Jesus said, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. And he asked, why do you seek to kill me? If you look at verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. But if you glance down at verse 44 of chapter 7, some of them, that would be the Jewish people and certainly the leaders, wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. If you will go down to to uh, uh, verse 59 of chapter 8, excuse me, chapter 8, 59. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And so chapter 7 begins, chapter 8 ends with murderous desire. Now I remind you as we step into chapter 7 that Jesus is just about six months to the cross. That's it. And so here we've gone this far in the opening six chapters, but the cross is just six months away. I think it's interesting that John took time in his gospel to give two-thirds of the entire gospel to the last week of Jesus Christ. This is not the last week. You'll find out in just a moment we're about six months away. But let's pick up the text here on this teaching at the Feast of Booth or the Feast of Tabernacles. And let's walk through the text. Let me set the setting for you. It says in 7.1 that after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. It says he would not go up to Judea. Stop there just for a moment. It says after this. You say after what? That's just a a designation there that after chapter 6... After the feeding of the 5,000. Now you'll note there, it says in 7.1, Jesus went about in Galilee. But here, that statement after this is not a statement for the purpose of a strict time frame. But it's to show progression, if you will, after the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. It's likely that from the end of chapter 6 to the opening statement in chapter 7, verse 1, there would have been about a a seven-month time gap, okay? You say, well, Scott, it says there in 7-1 after this, but we we say that, just so you know, there's a six six to seven-month 
time gap. We, we say that and note that because you remember in chapter 6, if you go back to verse 4, look back in 6-4 when he fed the 5,000, when he gave the discourse on the bread of life, it says in 6-4, now the feast of the Jews, or now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. And so in chapter 6, it's Passover season, and Passover season in Israel took place in the month of April. But chapter 7, if you look down in verse 2, when it describes the Feast of Booths, or when it describes, it's just another expression of the Feast of Tabernacles, that takes place in between September and October, okay? So when John says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee, he's not writing an airtight chronology. He writes his gospel for the purpose that you might believe in him. Now, glance down again. I think it's, I think it's somewhat interesting. It says, after this, after the feeding of the 5,000, he's in Galilee, if you will, for six months or six more months. He goes about Galilee. Now, what's interesting with John is he doesn't detail that account for us, does he? He just pushes us forward to the, to the Feast of Booths. But it's interesting that the accounts of that time in Galilee are detailed. And they're detailed in Mark chapter 7 through 9. And the Lord primarily spent time in Galilee with his disciples, primarily, as he was teaching them. And I just want to make a note for you. It highlights the importance that our Lord would give his disciples. He spent time in Galilee. Some scholars choose to call that time in Galilee that, that's stated in 7.1. And I don't really like the, the time frame. But they call it, quote, the retirement ministry. And, and there were things that he did, certainly in Galilee in that time frame, but predominantly he was giving himself to the disciples. There were miracles, yes, but he was primarily teaching the disciples extensively, and that's why they call it the retirement ministry. You can see that in Matthew 16. You see that in Matthew 17. You see that in Matthew 18. And just to put you at a point of reference here, when he was in Galilee at that point for that seven-month gap, prior to coming in back to Jerusalem or Judea at the Feast of the Booths, he told them for the first time about his rejection. He told them about his crucifixion. He told them in that time in Galilee about his resurrection. It was during that time in Galilee that he also revealed himself to the inner circle or to the three regarding his transfiguration in Matthew 17. Now, I just say this to you, just to, we'll, we'll keep moving here. But he spent, in chapter 6, two days with a massive crowd of people, okay? Remember, we said that he fed 5,000 men. It was more likely that he probably fed 15,000. And it's even more likely that we think on a day like that, it was 20,000 people. So he spends two days with those people in the feeding of the 5,000, but he spends, beloved, six months involved with the 12. I think that's significant. It shows that the primary focus of our Lord's ministry was not on mass meetings. 
it was on discipleship. And our Lord devoted his energy to a small group of men who would carry on that ministry after he was gone. In fact, John MacArthur said that the measure of any church's success is not the size of its congregation, but the depth of its discipleship. And I think that's true. I think that's true here, that the measure of our own success isn't how big we get. The measure of success is how you walk with the Lord and how we disciple each other during the week and throughout the week. So he stays in Galilee. Now, he stays in Galilee, look down at the text again, because he would not go about in Judea. It's very clear there. You say, well, why would he not go about in Judea? Look at the text again, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And so at this point, obviously our Lord's not going to not go to the cross, but for this time frame, he wanted to spend that extensive time with his disciples. And you remember that Galilee is up north, if you will, okay? And it's in a little bit of a different jurisdiction. It was kind of controlled more by Herod at that point. When you get down below south in Judea where Jerusalem is, it would have been under greater emphasis of the Jewish leadership there. And so Jesus here stayed away from Judea where the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, look again at the text just to be clear with you. It says he wouldn't go up to Judea because, and it mentions this here, the Jews were seeking to kill him. And I think it's important just for me to note, as we've seen before in John, those were not the general Jewish people. But whenever you find that phrase, it is a reference to the hostile Jewish leadership in Judea. In fact, go back to chapter 5, just turn back a couple chapters. You remember that in 518 where he told them who he was. And they said, this is why the Jews, and that's the Jewish leadership, were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so all the way back in chapter 5, they were seeking to kill him. And so here's the time frame. He's been in the place of Galilee, if you will. He's been ministering primarily to his disciples. He stayed in that northern region simply because down south, the Jewish leader was seeking to kill him. Now look at the setting here in 7-2. It says, now the feast, or now the Jews, he said, feast of booths was at hand. Now you can either call that the feast of booths, if you hear me say feast of tabernacles, those are used interchangeable. So it's this season, okay? It's the Feast of Tabernacles. And you say, what is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths? Well, that's found. I won't take you there. But it's found in the Old Testament in Leviticus 23, 33 through 36, okay? They called it the Feast of Booths. They called it the Feast of Tabernacles. And that feast that they had would last seven days. It would actually go for seven days. And then on the eighth day, they would have a final celebration. And whenever they did that feast, it took place from the 15th to the 21st of Tishri, is what they called it in the Jewish calendar. And that was usually at some point, as I mentioned, between September and October. You said, well, what would they do at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, the people 
who would live in rural areas would build these makeshift shelters or these structures made of branches and leaves and they lived in them for a week and that's why it's called booths or that's why it's called makeshift the the ideal of tabernacles but those who lived in the towns certainly in jerusalem uh, put these structures up on their roofs they put these structures in their courtyards and they too lived in these tents or booths for seven days you say what were they doing They were remembering God's provision for the nation of Israel when they were wandering through the wilderness. They were remembering how their fathers lived for 40 years in tents and in booths. And so they made this one of their key celebrations. In fact, you can kind of just imagine the time just a little bit. I would tell you that the Feast of Tabernacles was really a celebration. They had just maybe weeks earlier celebrated the seriousness of the Day of Atonement where, you know, the priest would go into the, into the inner court and, and offer that lamb and the blood would be shed to cover for the sins of the people. When you got to the Feast of the Tabernacles, it was really kind of a, a celebratory time. To, to put it in our language, it's like now. There were many people who were involved in agriculture all year. And then once they reaped the harvest, they had this feast. And so many of them didn't have quite the responsibility that they once did. And it was a time where Hendrickson said that they were blowing trumpets each day. There was a a, a celebration, if you will, a ceremony of the outpouring of water. And when they poured out this water, it was in commemoration of the water that had come forth miraculously from the rock at Meribah in Exodus 17. And then not only was there this ceremony of the water, but they had an illumination of light in the inner court of the temple where they would light um, the grand candelabra and it reminded the Jewish people of the pillar of fire by night, which, uh, you know, had served them as a guide through the desert. So this was just a, a famous time. In fact, the historian Josephus said that the Feast of Tabernacles or the Booths was the most popular and happiest of the three Jewish feasts. Of course, those three feasts were Passover, Pentecost, and then this one, the Tabernacles. And so it was known for these water-drawing rites, if you will, and the lamp lighting. And In fact, it's interesting, and we'll, get, we'll see this. Our Lord makes reference to them. Look in chapter 7, verse 37. He refers to the water, but he says, On the last day of the feast... The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Look over in chapter 8, in verse 12, where Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Jesus is going to go on to say that he's the fulfillment of what they were celebrating and yet they're trying to kill him. I think you got to remember this, the ideal of the Feast of Tabernacles, because according to Zechariah 14, during the Millennial Kingdom, this feast will again be celebrated in honor of the Messiah's dwelling with his people and the gathering of the nations into his kingdom. And so there's just the setting. And then what follows, okay, are three amazing 
conversations that reveal the confusion that surrounds the Messiah and also the misunderstanding of who he really is, okay? Three amazing conversations. There is a request of the brothers. They make a request of Jesus. There is a response by our Lord to those brothers, secondly. And then thirdly, there is a reaction from the crowd with the thought that you must decide. But let's look at these conversations that reveal who he is. The first one is the request of his brothers. The request of his brothers. Look back to chapter 7 and verse 3. I think it's interesting here. He said, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Now, it mentions his brothers there. I think we often don't stop here and focus on this, but we do know from the scripture that Jesus had brothers. If you want to write this down, at least in Matthew 13, 55, there's four of them that are named. He had a brother named James. He had a brother named Joseph. He had a brother named Simon. And he had a brother named Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but another brother named Judas. And so we know he had brothers because the Bible says he had brothers, which, you know, from me to you, clearly then, this is not the perpetual virginity of Mary. She was not a perpetual virgin, if you will. She had other kids. Jesus, of course, being the oldest, because Mary, when he was born, was a virgin. And these brothers, of course, would be our Lord's half-brothers because of his divine virgin birth. So his brothers step into his life a little bit, which is fascinating. And look what they say to him in verse 3. They said, leave here and go to Judea. Of course, as we looked in 7.1, he's in Galilee. And they come to him kind of as his campaign manager, if you will. And they said, you need to leave here and you need to go into Judea. I think it's interesting. It's not wholly wrong that they tell him to go. Because according to Deuteronomy 16... According to Exodus 23, all Jewish males were to attend this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. But they want him to go. And then look at verse 3, what they want him to do. They want to say that your disciples, verse 3, may also see the works that you are doing. In other words, this is a popular feast to the brothers, obviously. It seemed like the perfect time that their brother could present himself. And they say to Jesus, if you will, display your power again. Do it again in Judea. Again, down south, which is where Jerusalem was. You need to go to this feast. And when you, need to, and when you go to this feast, you need to recover the crowds. I think that's what they're saying to him. You need to reverse your fortune. Jesus, you just had a hard time back in chapter 6 after you made the hard sayings, and after you made those hard sayings in 666, many of his disciples turned their back on him and walked with him no longer. The brothers say, hey, it's the feast now. You need to go, and you need to show those disciples who you really are. In fact, look at verse 4. Here's another thought. For no one, Jesus, their thought is, works in secret, or they, they don't hide themselves as the thought, if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself, the brothers said, to the world. 
That is their request. They want him to reveal himself. And they don't want him to hide it in a metaphor. They want him to show himself demonstrably. They want him to make a splash. They probably in our day would want him to put it on Twitter and on Facebook. In other words, don't hide yourself. You're kind of cryptic sometimes. And by the way, why should you stay in Galilee and just be a country preacher? I mean, why don't you get out and go to this festival? Why don't you reveal yourself? And so they need to see your works. You need to do them openly. Stop being a secret. In fact, it's interesting. And I just look over in John chapter 10 for a moment. Uh, Sometimes Jesus would speak to them in parables, would he not? And in John chapter 10 and in verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. But privately, we would know that later he would reveal himself to his disciples. Look over at the next chapter in chapter eleven fourteen, when he had told them earlier that Lazarus was sleeping. He says in eleven fourteen, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus, if you will, has died okay so sometimes he would speak to the disciples privately in fact look over at john chapter 16 this is a little bit of what the the brothers are requesting in john chapter 16 in verse 25 he said i have said these things to you in figures of speech he said the hour is coming when i will no longer speak to you in figures of speech but will tell you plainly about the father in fact look down in 1629 his disciples said ah now you are speaking plainly and not using figures of speech and so you have this dialogue going on with his brothers they're making a request to jesus you need to leave galilee or excuse me you need to yeah leave galilee you need to go to judea if you want to gain followers jesus we don't want you to use a metaphor we want you to show yourself publicly we want you to advance in your career whoever you are by performing the miraculous in fact you can sense them trying to catch the setting here that this is the feast of tabernacles these are the religious people are there he's got to go down south into jerusalem it's a festive occasion show yourself to the world get in the limelight again don't just remain this country bumpkin if you will however we all know as we've been studying john's gospel look back remember after he fed look back to john chapter Six. Do you remember when he fed the, the 5,000 and performed the miraculous there? That it says in 6.14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 15 of chapter 6, perceiving that they went of, were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew. He knew what they were after. They wanted the meals. They wanted to be fed. They wanted to see the miraculous. They didn't want to yield their life because when he told them the difficult statements, they stopped following. And there are people who have stopped following here in our own community. People that you've been with, people that you grew up with, people as a child, people whom you were in catechism together and people who you memorize scriptures together. That sometimes the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches enters in and it chokes the word. 
And so he already did these amazing miracles as we've been looking at John. You say, what, was, what did they want? Well, look at 626. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. That's why they were following our Lord. And they stopped following him. So they make this request. I think you can see that. Demonstrate your works. Maybe they're even saying to Jesus, vindicate your family honor. They're really saying to him, identify yourself. Now, you're asking as I am, as you come back to John chapter 7, why would they say this? This is interesting anyways, isn't it? These are his brothers. So his brothers enter into his life and you say, well, what is his brother's motives? And there's much written on this that the Jews were trying to kill him. Is he, is he telling them to, to go down there so that he's actually killed? And there's much question here, but I know what their motive is. And it's a fascinating insight. You say, how do you know what they're all about? Well, look at the next verse. It's, it's stunning in 7.5. It says there, for not even his brother's had believed in him. Is that an amazing statement? In, in fact, it's what we call in the Greek language, put in the perfect tense, that they were continuing in their unbelief of him. And I think it just shows you that family relationships do not guarantee faith. Our Lord saves, according to John chapter 3, sovereignly. But this is not the only insight that we have, that his brothers had not yet believed in him. It tells us in Mark 3.31 that when his family heard about the ministry of Jesus, it says that they went out to seize him, saying in John 3, excuse me, 21, that he is out of his mind. These are his brothers. They grew up with him. Now, maybe that's a little intimidating that they grew up with him. He never sinned. <laughs> he, he never erred. He never had a wrong word. He never gave eyes to his parents. He never had a flippant word. He never had a moment of anger, and they're growing up with him, okay? But what's fascinating is they want him to go south, but the text is clear. They don't even believe in him. In fact, it tells us in Mark 6, 3, is not this the carpenter? It says there, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph, Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not, it says there in Mark 6, 3, his sisters here with us, and it says there that they took offense at him. So on the one hand, his own family thinks he's out of his mind, and they take offense at him. Now, I think what John's trying to put together here is not only have the disciples defected that were following him in six, verse 66, but now in 7-5, not even his brothers were following him. So you've got the disciples' apostasy, and now you've got the unbelief of his brothers. But did not John already tell us that he was in the world and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not, what, know him? He came into his own, and his own people did not, what, receive him? Even his own brothers didn't receive him. In fact, I think just the little implication here by J.C. Ryle who said many years ago, in Jesus there was no fault either in temperament or word or deed, yet Christ, even Christ's own brothers did not believe in him. Ryle went on to say that parents should not marvel if their children struggle in their walk with God. 
They saw Christ's miracles, speaking of the brothers. They heard Christ's teaching. They lived in Christ's company, but were unbelieving. And so Ryle said the possession of spiritual privileges never yet made anyone a Christian, end of quotes. Now, I think we understand that after his death, after the cross, after the resurrection, his brothers would place their faith, at least some of them, in Christ. You can see that in Acts 1.14. You can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. In fact, we've already exposited through one of his brother's books, James. Do you remember that? That's his half-brother, of course. Jude is his other half-brother who wrote the epistle of Jude. But at this point in the Gospels, they're not believing him. And so they want him to go down. They want him to do the miraculous. If you go down, if you show yourself, and it almost sounds a little bit like Satan's temptation of Jesus. If you turn this rock or this stone into bread, right? It it almost seems that that's what's coming. So here's the request of the brothers. But secondly, here's the second conversation. The response of Jesus. It's actually a stunning comment here, response. The response of Jesus begins in verse 16. Jesus said to them, he said this to their request, my time has not yet come. It kind of reminds you of Jesus with his mother at the wedding in John 2, 4. Women, woman, he says, do you remember that? What does this have to do with me? Jesus said to his own mother, my time has not yet come. In fact, look at verse 8 of chapter 7. You go to the feast. I am not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. So here's his response. Uh, My time's not here. My time has not arrived. Look at chapter 7 in verse 30. They were seeking, it says there, to arrest him. And no one laid a hand on him. And here's why. Because his hour had not yet come. Look over at chapter 8 in verse 20. He will say something similar there. That the words he spoke in the treasury, he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him in 820 because his hour had not yet come. And so he's going to say, I'm I'm not going uh, to the feast. He, He just says to them, my time has not come. You say, would there be a time when he would uh Would his time come? Yeah, look over in John chapter 12, just to touch on it. At least here, six months out of his cross, it wasn't his time. But you remember when he's about six days before the cross in John chapter 12 and in verse 23, Jesus answered them and he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Look down at verse 27. He says here, after after the triumphal entry, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But then he says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Look at chapter 13 in verse 1, when he's about to wash the disciples' feet. It says, before the feast of the Passover. See, it's April, six months later, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father And there's more. So the hour then that he's speaking here is the unmistakable reference to when Jesus would be glorified, to when Jesus would be lifted up on the cross. And so he says, it's not my time to go up to Jerusalem 
for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now look back in John chapter 7. Jesus is very direct in his response to them. He said, my time has not come, but your time, he says, is always here. In other words, you can go down to Jerusalem, but really what Jesus is saying is, I'm under the constraint of my father. He says to his unbelieving brothers, you can go anywhere you want. You can do anything you want at any time you want. I can't. Because at least in John 5, 19, he said the son can do nothing of his own accord. Now look how he responds to them in verse 7. He says to his brothers, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. That's an interesting phrase. He said the world cannot hate you. Okay? In other words, it can't hate you. Here's what he's telling his brothers. Because you're already part of it. The world doesn't hate you to his brothers. He said because you belong to it is really what he's saying. And the world as we know it loves its own. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In fact, he will say later in John 15.18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, he says to his disciples, he said, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so he tells his brothers, listen, he says, my time has not yet come, okay? He, He says, but your time's always here. You say, but why does the world hate Christ? But why does the world hate believers? Well, the reason's given, look in verse seven. It says, because I testify about it that its works are evil. And that harkens back, does it not, to John 3 that the judgment has come and light has come into the world and the people love their darkness rather than the light, Jesus said, because their works were evil. He said, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So the world hates Christ. Why? Because their works are evil and they do wicked things and so they hate Christ because they don't want to come to the light And if they come to the light, their works would be exposed. And so it is in our day. There's some people who have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And uh, they have nothing to do with it because they don't want to give up their sin. Jesus says to his brothers, in essence, you want me to show myself to the world. But the world is more committed to their sin than they are to the truth itself. So you say, what happens in this response? Well, it's kind of fascinating. Look at verse 8. He tells his brothers, here's his response. You got to follow this carefully. He said, you go up to the feast. Now, it says in verse 8, I am not going up to the feast. And again, he says it. For my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, look at verse 9. He remained in Galilee. Now, somewhat puzzling, maybe as you read it. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, it says there, but in private. Now that's interesting. He says, you go up, I'm not going up. Uh, My father hasn't released me to go up. My hour's not here, if you will, as he says in 7 and 8. My time's not yet fully come. So he remains in Galilee, but then in verse 10 
after his brother goes up, he goes up to the feast. Now, I won't take you on. We'll look at that in John chapter 7. He goes up about midweek. So they go up at the beginning. They take their caravan, their family. It was a big procession. It's a festival. It's fun. There's trumpets. There's food. I mean, everything's going on. They leave in their family caravan. He stands, he waits behind in Galilee. But then as you'll see in about midway through, somehow the father signals to him that you should go and he goes up. So watch this. He turns down his brother's request, does he not? They make a request. His response is, I'm not going, and he, he doesn't go. And so how do we put this together? I, this way. <clears throat> he does not promise that he will not go to the feast when he, the father gives him the okay. And maybe it's just that when he's talking to the brothers, and they're saying, you need to stop hiding You need to reveal yourself. You need to stop being a person in secret. You need to go public with this thing. You need to show your works. Jesus could say, I'm not going in the fashion that you want me to go. And I'm not going with the fanfare in which you want me to go in. And maybe he just means I'm not going to show myself to the world in the time that you think I should show myself to the world. And I think what Jesus is saying is I'm on my father's timetable, not theirs. And then in addition, it's right there in the text. It could just be that he told him, I'm not going up with you publicly. But then in the middle of the week, he goes up what? He goes up privately. Now, now you can't see this in the white spaces here, but it's in the other gospels. I think it's intriguing. He doesn't just go the straight path down. The other gospel tells us that he goes through Samaria. How many Jews do you think were in Samaria? None. They were loathed by the Samarian people. So it's interesting that he goes half the week later. And when he goes, he goes through Samaria where some Jewish people would never set their foot in. And he did a little work there, okay? And I think he might have even went through Samaria because he's not going publicly. He's going, if you will, privately. And as I mentioned, remember that when people went to this festival, they went in a caravan and they traveled with their whole family. And I think Jesus' family was huge. You say, well, how do I know that? Well, do you remember in the other part of the gospel when he went to the temple and Jesus remained behind in the temple as a 12-year-old, was he not? And he was talking to the Jewish priest and the rabbis and and then they had made their way back, right? And then they had to, what, turn around? And how long did it take him to get back? It took him a whole day to get back. They realized he was gone, and then it took him a whole day to turn back. You say, why did it take a whole day? Because I think they were traveling with hundreds of people in their family. I think this is exactly what the Jewish leaders were looking for. I think if he traveled with his family, they would know that Jesus was coming. So he says, I'm not going now. Now, what's interesting there, and I doubt, I don't know if some of you are holding this in your lap, but the NIV says it this way. Would you glance down in verse 8? It says, you go up to the feast, he said there. In verse 8, he said, I am not going up to this feast. What's interesting in the NIV, if you want to know what it says, it says this in verse 8, you go up to the feast, I am not yet going up to the feast. So the NIV 
has supplied the word in there. In the Greek, it's the word ouk, okay? You say, well, why does the NIV supply the word yet? Well, it's supplied there, obviously, because some manuscript traditions supply the word ouk. So that what it says in verse 8 is I'm not yet going up to the feast. There's a number of manuscripts that have that. Now, you're reading the NASV, excuse me, the ESV. It doesn't say that. And they've chosen to leave that out. And you say, well, why did they leave that out? Well, they left that out because there's a number of manuscripts that don't contain the word yet. And sometimes what Bible translators do is they're looking, and you guys understand this, we have well over 4,000 Greek manuscripts. In fact, there is so many Greek manuscripts, it's unbelievable as to the historicity of the Word of God. And I think I've told you that, that 99.9 manuscripts say all the same thing. But sometimes, like in this case, you have that little word that is added. Now watch this. I would say it's added in some of the later manuscripts. There's early manuscripts according to their date. And then there's some manuscripts that were found and revealed that have come out a little bit later. And so the later manuscripts have the word yet. The earlier manuscripts don't. So what I'm telling you is the ESV then chose to go with the harder reading, which is the earlier reading. I think what they're trying to do is they think some scribe, knowing that this was going to be a little confusing, at a later time translated that Greek translation with the word yet. And yet, I don't believe that it's best to see it. So the ESV leaves it out. I'm not, I don't have a problem with it. I just think Jesus chose not to go. He chose not to go in the manner that they wanted him to go. They wanted him to go publicly. He wanted to go privately. He wanted to go on his father's timetable. And so he went in this fashion. And somehow he didn't have that release. And then in the middle of the week, his heavenly father said, you now go. And so here's the request of his brothers. Here's the response of Jesus. And third and finally, the, th- the third conversation is the reaction of the crowds it's all that's left it says look at verse 11 the jews were looking for him at the feast saying where is he and again we have to just say the jews the jewish leadership and with evil intention where is he in fact look at verse 12 there's another response there was much muttering about him among the people In other words, there's widespread whispering. There's crowds. Imagine this in Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacle. And they're all whispering. The Jewish leadership said, where is he? They're muttering. It's the ideal of of grumbling, if you will. But some said, look again in verse 12. Some said he's a good man. Obviously, he's more than that. Some people just didn't know what to do with him. But look what others said in verse 12. No, he is leading the people astray. He's deceiving the people. They basically said that Jesus is a charlatan. In fact, at the trial in Matthew 27, it says we remember how that imposter. There were people who thought he was an imposter. It tells us in Luke 23, 2, when they were at his trial again, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give thanks And tribute to Caesar and saying that he is Christ a king. And so here's the reaction of the crowd. It's all over the place. And then look at verse 13. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. For fear of the Jews. Again, it's the fear of 
the leadership. You say, well, who's specifically in the leadership? It's the Pharisees in chapter 7. It's the Sanhedrin in chapter 7. It's the authorities in chapter 7. It's the rulers in chapter 7. It's the chief priest in chapter 7. It also includes the Sadducees in chapter 7. Watch this. These people were so controlling, so manipulative, that the people in the day did not say anything because they had such fear of Jewish leaders that no one spoke openly of him. It's it's also the mark of a cult, is it not? When leaders control what people think and control what people say. But they were afraid of the Jews. And the parents of the man who was born blind feared, it said, the Jews because they feared that they would be put out of the synagogue in 922. It says that some of the authorities in 1242 believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. You remember in chapter 1938, Joseph of Arimathea, it says a disciple of Jesus, it said, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked for the body of Jesus. These people manifested such control of these people that no one spoke openly of them so some people said he's a good man others said he's leading people astray but the real question this morning is this who do you say he is who is jesus christ see the central issue then and the central issue now is the person of christ in fact i would put it this way it's not even the miracles of christ Who would not like the miracles if he came today? It's the words of Christ. Who is he? What do you say about him? Jesus will go on to say that he is the living water, that whoever believes in him will never thirst again. He will go on to say that he's the light of the world, that whoever trusts in him will know the light of life. And the point is, here, he draws us in, and you've got to make a decision. And he, recalls, he calls you, if you will, to respond to him. He says in other scriptures, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. I pray that your response would be that of Peter's. Would you look back in chapter 6, in verse 68? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then he said in 69, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I pray that that's your confession today, that Peter's response would be your response, and we'll certainly fill this out in the weeks to come.